So today we're talking about the uh, helmet of salvation. Is that less scary or more scary? I'm not sure. There we go. What's that? There we go. Anybody want a wig? I know you do. <laughs> so our verse today. Um, so looking at Ephesians chapter 6. Please turn there and we'll, we'll be looking at this. Ephesians chapter 6. Um, the verses I've translated here is uh, the helmet of salvation grasp. Um, you know, we, we've really tried to be silly with this. this. We wanted this to stick out in your memory. And so we've done a lot of uh, silly things. But I think you've gotten the point. And we can think systematically about somebody, a Roman soldier, who's putting on the different pieces of his armor. He puts on the belt. He puts on the breastplate. He puts on the shoes. He gets all ready. And then finally, sort of the last thing he does is he, is he puts on that helmet. And Paul calls this helmet the helmet of salvation. This, this last piece that you're going to put on, this last piece of armor, is in fact salvation itself. And as I was pondering this word salvation, it got me thinking that, that perhaps we don't all mean the same thing when we use that word. I mean, salvation or saved, that's a buzzword. It's a thing that every Christian, no matter what church you go to, is going to use to describe your state with God. And yet we know that there's a very... Uh, why difference between groups of Christians, between different churches? So much so that we will often say that those Christians over there aren't real Christians, or they aren't really saved. Of course, we don't say that to people. We just say it on Facebook or something like that. But, but we think it. And so I think we have to be sort of careful about using this word salvation or saved as though everybody means the same thing by it. Because they don't. They don't. And so we need to define terms, and, and I think even a deeper question that we might ask ourselves this morning is that when we use this word, when we say we have put on the helmet of salvation, or we say that I am saved, are we being true to what Paul means, to what the Bible means when it says salvation? Salvation. And we believe here that um, salvation is connected to three different concepts that are interlocked. If you've got, if you picked up a bulletin on the flip side of the bulletin um, are the ser- these sermon notes and you can fill in there um, or make notes or whatever, follow along. Judgment, kingdom, and good news. First, salvation is related to judgment, to the kingdom of God, and to this word we, this phrase we use, good news or gospel. And these two are buzzwords. They're catch-all words, and, and people use them kind of however they want to use them. And so we're going to be very careful this morning and define what we mean as a church when we use these words. I think to begin with salvation, obviously, what we mean by salvation or to save is that somebody is facing impending doom. Like, there is a situation, there is something that is happening, and that person has to be rescued from that danger. There is real, present, imminent danger, and that person or group of people need to be rescued from that danger. And so we read things in the Bible, like Psalm 62, 6, where David is talking, and he says, He, that is God, uh, only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. And we tend to think of this as kind of a a futuristic, I think when we read this as Christians, we read this all as as future. This is something that's going to happen to me 
down the road, or we think of it as a spiritual thing. It's, it's my like, peace with God. It's my good feelings when I think about God. It's my lack of a guilty conscience, maybe those kinds of things. But David doesn't mean any of that. David means, I'm not going to die today. That's what salvation means. He means, I'm going into battle, and my enemies will not be victorious over me. He means his enemies won't win the day and that he will be given salvation. He will be preserved in his life. And this uh, it gives it a very visceral, very right now, right here, physical, real experience to that word salvation that I don't think we mean when we use that word salvation. But I do think it's what Paul means when he uses the word salvation. I think it is carried into the New Testament and I think that this kind of reshapes the way that we, that we talk about it. Um, there's a kind of intensity here when we think of a, a helmet of salvation. If you go into battle, hopefully not too hairless, but if you go into battle uh, against somebody who's got swords and spears and, and knives and uh, ballistas and all that kind of stuff, and you're not wearing a helmet, you're in danger, Right? I mean, real, present, imminent, this is deadly, you could die, this is danger. And so when Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation, I don't think he's, he's just making a metaphor and just politely suggesting, here's something you ought to do, you know, when you get around to it. I think he's saying, you are about to die. You are going to lose everything. You are going to be destroyed. There is something that is coming at you, it's on the horizon, and you need to put this thing on or you will So just as salvation is not future, we experience salvation here and now, so judgment is not just future. It is something we experience here and now. Paul says in uh, Romans 1 verse 8 this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Take that in for a moment. Because when we think of the word judgment, when we think of the word uh, wrath, we think of this as something that is about to happen or it's going to happen. It's going to happen when I die or it's going to happen when Jesus comes back. It is future. It's not right here and right now. And so what does Paul mean? Because clearly he, he locates this as right now the wrath of God, right now the judgment of God, right now it is visible. And right now as he continues on through the book of Romans, right now you need to be saved from it. And so what does, he, what does he mean by that? Well, I encourage you to go home and read Romans chapter 1. We're not going to go through it all today, but let me summarize it. In Romans chapter 1, he lays out the sins of the world. And it doesn't matter what world we're talking about. If we're, if we're talking about the ancient world, we're talking about the modern world. If we're talking about Rome, we're talking about America. It doesn't matter. He lays out the sins of people. And he talks about our idolatry, our willingness to put every hobby, every job, every relationship, everything that we like, we put it in the place of God and we give it primacy in our lives, our idolatry. We have traded the knowledge and worship of God for the knowledge and worship of things. That we have participated in sexual immorality. That, that we are greedy, that we are haters, and we are, we are God resisters, and we resist the truth. We suppress it by our ungodliness, by our unrighteousness. We don't let it go out. No, because we prefer our sin and our darkness. Paul says this is the living witness and evidence of the judgment of God right here, right now. 
And right here and right now, you need to be saved from it. He gives us three ways in which this happens in this this chapter. First, he says there is a searing of the conscience. And we take this from all kinds of places in the Bible. You might think of Hebrews um, chapter 12. You might hear, think of the verse that says, you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You might think of um, John chapter 15 where Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to come and convict concerning sin and guilt and judgment. And there comes a point in the lives of people where we have committed a sin so much. The first time you do something wrong, what do you feel? Guilt. What happens the second time? Less guilt. The third time, and the fourth time, and the fifth time, and the sixth time. Less and less and less and less until no longer you feel any guilt whatsoever. And what happens in that situation? How many of you have heard uh, this thing, uh, this phrase, or something akin to it that God never gives up on you? You heard that? Unfortunately, that is not a biblical truth. I know it's something we'd like to believe. I know it's something that we'd like to say. I know it's something that makes us feel better. But three times in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, God gave them up. He gave them up to the sexual immoralities that they wanted to practice. He gave them up to a defiled and debased mind. He gave them up. They wanted to live a life of sin. And he said, fine, go live your life of sin. God gave them up. And so what happens is, especially if we are able to commit sin, and I say this to you whether you call yourself a Christian or don't, doesn't matter because God doesn't see titles or labels or names. He sees you, right? He sees you. And so whatever you call yourself doesn't matter. If you are able to sin again and again and again, knowing that the scriptures say this is something I ought not to do, and you can do it without the guilt coming at your conscience, your heart is rock hard. You are like Pharaoh. You are living evidence of the judgment and wrath of God that will be poured out on this world as you continue in your sin. It's a very fearsome truth Paul lays out here. He also says that there will be expanding immorality, that this is, this is evidence of the wrath of God, that God just leaves us. He says, you know what, you want to walk in sin? Fine, you walk in sin. I am no longer connecting myself to you. I am no longer reaching out to you. That is the wrath of God. Having no connection to God? And this expanding sin he talks about isn't just expansion in the sense that you're going to do more of the same kind of sin. Of course, that will happen too. But it means that that sin that you committed in that moment, it's not enough for you. And that's the truth of sin. The truth of of doing things that are opposed to the will of God, doing things that are directly contradictory to the scriptures, will never bring you wholeness and peace. You will always want more. More of it, more of it, more of it. And the more of it always tends to satiate less. Expanding the need for more, it is, becomes addiction. And this is living proof of the wrath of God. Not only has God left you in your sins, and not only has he allowed you to choose your own path, but now he has given you, or you are, you are witnessing the curse of sin, and that is, you can never get enough of it. And it's... One sin leads to another sin, so one sin will lead to another type of sin, and your whole life will be consumed with rebellion against God. Thirdly, Paul says, the consequences of our sin. The natural consequences of our sin. See, in our enlightened age, and in, of course, this enlightened country, we are seeing the effects of sin. Uh, I can't help but step into the marriage arena here for a bit. Oh, boy. 
the marriage arena for a bit. And while the, this is a hot-button issue because of the Supreme Court's uh, upcoming decision about um, homosexuality and marriage and how that's going to all work out, I want to take you a few generations back to when we thought divorce was a sin. And now it's just something we accept. To when we thought you ought to wait uh, before you're married to have sex. We thought that was a sin. And now the polls and studies show that my generation and younger don't even think that is true anymore, even though the scriptures are plain. There is, there, there is no weaseling out of these kinds of truths. And yet we see in these places where we've seen such unrest in the past, this past year has just been like riots and all kinds of craziness going on in these big cities, in these inner cities, in these places where, you know what, there is no father in the picture. Single parent families. And we know statistically, single parent families, um, whatever the strife, anything that is outside of a mom and a dad and a kid that is living in unity, that is striving toward loving one another, we know that it goes up exponentially, the risk of drugs, of crime, and of jail. And my anecdotal evidence is this, that as I spent three years serving uh, as a volunteer chaplain at a youth detention facility, I guarantee you at least 90, at least 90% of the kids that came through here were going to be back they were going to be back. And 90% of those kids had no connection to their dad, either because he had abandoned them or because he was in jail already. Man, this falls on us. And so we think that somehow we could sort of resist God and do something different than God. The New York Times this week called traditional marriage an absurdity, right? And this is the attitude. Even if it's not the belief, even if people say, well, that's not true, that's too harsh. That's the practice of the church, in America, that is a visible representation, a witness of the wrath of God and judgment of God upon us. Because I see broken homes, and you know what broken homes produce? Broken people. And you know what broken people are? A blight and a judgment. We think that we can resist the word of God and there won't be consequences. No, the consequences are revealed in our streets, in our schools, in our homes, in our churches throughout the world. The judgment of God is being revealed. It's not far away. It is at the doorstep and we are experiencing it even now. And this is why Paul says to the teeming crowds of people in Jerusalem, he says, save yourselves from this crooked and corrupt generation. And the message to you is a message of salvation that has judgment in its back seat that says, listen, the same thing that was true then is true now. Be saved. It's not simply a, a now thing. There is a future judgment whose ferocity and coming makes our present judgments pale in such comparison. Revelation depicts it like this. Poetically, it says there is an earthquake and the sky is black like, like sackcloth and the moon is that, that eerie blood color. The stars are falling from the sky and the sky is being rolled, pulled back like a scroll. And the mountains and places to hide are being removed and, and people are scattering all over the world. And the prophet says, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the presidents, the CEOs, the powerful, the rich, the generals, the armies, everyone, slave and free. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains, calling to the rocks, come back, cover us up for the wrath of the lamb has come. And who is able to stand? Who can stand before it? 
This is the truth that drove Jesus. And this is the truth that drove Paul. Why do you think they would leave behind every comfort and every accolade to find themselves finally crucified or beheaded? It must be because they did believe that there was a message that needed to be preached to people. That Jesus had to be shared with somebody. Because if they don't have Jesus, they have judgment. And those are the only two options. And Paul gave his entire life for this message. And he's laid it in your laps, church. He's laid it on your conscience. I don't understand Christians these days. I don't understand what is going on. And here I'm sort of on a soapbox, and I apologize, but I just I'm, I'm don't know what to do. I don't understand Christians that are rejecting hell, who are rejecting judgment. I don't understand Christians who are being sort of wishy-washy about sin and say, well, you know, I know the Bible says it, but, you know, it's been a few thousand years, and, and you know, we've gotten a little smarter than we used to be, and, and we know a little better than this. And I, don't, I don't understand Christians who are constantly uh, griping or harping on this thing, well, we shouldn't judge other people, whatever that means anyway. Is this a message of salvation or not? Do people need to be saved or don't they? That's a question that you have to come to grips with, whether you're not a Christian or you have been a Christian for 50 years and you just sort of began to rest and take it easy. The question that sits on our heads today is this. Is it mean salvation or doesn't it? Because that makes a huge difference. We are beginning a study of Revelation in our small group uh, tonight, and, and Brad is too. If you're interested in that, get a hold of me. Or Brad, wave your hand so people see. Or Brad. Um, and what I love about Revelation is not this nonsense left behind junk that we've been busy about playing with scandals and controversies, but about how Revelation depicts Jesus Christ as a king who is in competition with other kings. That Jesus is revealed here as the, the Lamb of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And this isn't that he stands above and there are all these little kings down here and he's kind of over them. No, it is that Jesus is the King of kings and there are all of these other kings and they are lined up against him. That Jesus is in direct, uh, direct opposition. He is in conflict with kings and presidents, with economies and educational systems. He's in, he's in, con, he's in a contest against them. And I love this revelation that we have in there because the question that is brought to our, our doorstep again and again and again is that you have to pick a side. That the King of Kings is coming and that he is going to clear the threshing floor. He is going to clear it out. All that is evil and wicked is going to be gone and he is going to bring in his kingdom. And his kingdom is for the poor in spirit. This kingdom that is going to be built is for the meek. This kingdom is for the pure in heart. This is for those who hunger and thirst for what is right. This is for those people who are peacemakers. This is for the persecuted believer. And the question that sits at our doorstep right now is this. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? The helmet of salvation. Whose side are you on? Because this is the good news which is another buzzword. This is the gospel. The king is coming, and he's going to set up a kingdom. And do you belong in it, or don't you? Because he wants you to belong. That's the good news. And so we enter into this, this highlight that, that uh, Paul gives us to receive and to grasp. In Greek, if you remember, 
Um, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and verse 14 begins uh, the first imperative in this chunk of Scripture. An imperative is a Greek way of having an exclamation point. An exclamation point is the, where we are shouting or yelling or insisting, and that's the imperative. And so verse, verse 14 begins with this imperative that says, Stand, therefore. It's yelling at a stand. And then he, Paul lines out the different elements of the armor of God. Here we have the next, the only other um, imperative and it is grasp, or your Bibles might translate take. Maybe seize is a good word. I don't, know, I don't know an English word to put in there to make the English shout at you, other than just shouting at you, and I don't really want to do that. Um, but that's what's happening here. Obviously, all of these pieces of the armor of God are, are important, are imperative. You can't leave any of them behind. But the only piece of this armor that is literally being screamed at you is the helmet. Paul says, the helmet of salvation, grab it! Seize it! And this isn't getting at uh, the, the sort of um, old works righteousness debate. Paul isn't saying you crafted the helmet or you got it of your own accord. We went over Ephesians 2, 8. For, for some time about how um, salvation is a gift of grace. And so imagine this. Imagine Jesus is standing before you and he is holding you the helmet that will save your life. And all you have to do is take it. All you have to do is grab it and put it on. That's what stands before you today. Will you take it? Will you grab it? Will you put it on? This is our only task, and this is why Paul says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so I say to you, Christians, who have been half-hearted in your following Jesus, say to you, Christians, who have been, had one foot in your hobbies, or one foot in your job, or one foot in the world, or one foot in sinfulness, and you sort of have one foot tepidly in the church, and you're kind of like riding the fence, just living life as it comes. I say to you, Christians, who have secret sins in your life, skeletons in those closets, things that you do when no one's looking, someone's looking, someone sees. I say to you, people who have been resisting the call of God, you have heard and you have felt, you feel the pull of God to come forward, to receive the salvation, to come forward, to make a decision, to set your life straight. I say to you, people who have never received salvation, who have never accepted the gift of grace, I say to you, now is the day. Now is the time. Now and no other. You have nothing else. You have this moment. This moment is the time. Whose side? Are you on? Whose side are you on? There's no middle ground in a battle. There's no middle ground in a battle. You either fight or you fall. Where are you? And this is great. Um, and I don't want this to be sort of a downer sermon. I don't want you to walk away saying, oh man, I feel really bad. Because this is great hope. And this is great good news. We were lost unto ourselves. We were hating and hating others and hating ourselves. And we were hard-hearted. We were far from God. All of this stuff was our life. And now God has set before you a body fully equipped. He says, receive this gift. Receive this gift. Now, Paul uses this metaphor of the helmet of salvation um, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10, which says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not. You notice that? Underline that in your Bible. Well, you're not turn there. Write it down, underline it later. 
underline this. For God has not destined us to wrath. If you're hearing this message and you're feeling some, some need or kinship to respond to it, that's because God is speaking to you and he's saying, listen, I didn't destine you for wrath. I didn't make you so that I could judge you. I made you so that you would be free and you would dance in my presence and experience my life and be reborn and empowered and filled with my spirit. This is what you're destined to. We're not destined to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now, 1 Thessalonians, this, this text was written before Ephesians, which means that Paul has been using this metaphor, the armor of God, for probably some time and in different places to, to, talk, about, uh, to talk about the basics of the Christian faith. Contrary to those who have rejected Jesus Contrary to the judgment that many will receive, Paul presents here salvation as our hope. Our hope. And this isn't hope like, well, I, I, I hope I get a bike for Christmas, or I hope uh, I get uh, a raise, I don't know, whatever people hope for. <laughs> this isn't like a maybe this will happen down the road. This is a you can bank on this. You can trust this. You can invest your entire life in this. This hope is assured. And throughout the scriptures, he talks about ways that we can know it, that we experience grace within the, and forgiveness and the breaking down of enmity within the, the church itself. We experience the, the, the clean conscience. We experience the, the pull and move of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit itself as a depositor, guarantee of the salvation that we will be given by Jesus when he comes again. And I love that last line. Uh, underline that too when you go home and look it up. Underline that last line. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. If you're dead or if you're alive, Jesus has your back. I like that. Isn't that good news? Isn't that great news? We were destined for judgment. We were, we were children of wrath, as he says in Romans chapter 1, but now that has been changed because Jesus died for us so that whether we are dead or whether we are alive, we are living with him. That's hope. That's good news. That's wonderful. And so what should we do? How do we put into to practice this, this hope of salvation? How do we put into practice this life that God has so graciously handed over to us. First, I think with gratitude. And gratitude is always kind of a looking back. It's something happened to me and I'm thankful for it. And Paul says, and if, did I put it up? Nope. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, so like a page over in your Bibles, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by what is called the circumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the, the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from the church. You were strangers of the covenant and the promises of God. You had no hope. And you're without God in the world. Remember that time. And I like, he brings that word remember up twice. Remember that there was a time before this, before God's grace poured over you and you were a different person. And, and be grateful that you aren't that person anymore. Right? That you aren't that person anymore. 
Think about how you used to walk in sin. Think about how you were hollow and without hope in the world. Think about how you used to be destined for judgment and how you used to live according to the pattern and the ways of thinking and the priorities of the people around you. Think about how your life used to be disordered and chaotic and how you had grudges and you had enmities and you had, you had bad blood between people. Think about how you used to look in the mirror with guilt and shame. Think about how you used to be alone and you were alienated from the church, but now what's true of you? Now you are a child of the day. Now you are a son or daughter of God. Now you are forgiven. Now you are a friend of Christ. Now you are the body of Christ. Now you are destined. Now you are blessed. Now you are beloved. Now you have put on the helmet of salvation and you have experienced the fullness of the grace of God, leaving behind the wickedness and just crap of the past. All of that hurt, all of that wickedness. And you look back at it for a second and you say, look at what God did with my life. I am thankful. I'm thankful. You know how often I think God wants from us in our prayers just to say, thank you, Lord. Just to say thank you. To stop striving so hard, stop, uh, stop be, belaboring God with questions and, and problems, and just say thank you because you have transformed me, you have changed me. Thanks be to God, Paul says, for his inexpressible gift. Second, is hope. And hope, the Bible says, does not disappoint us. Hope allows us to look forward. It allows us to look into later this afternoon when you've got uh, something big coming up or tomorrow when you've got a big interview or you've got something coming up, um, something going on, or you look at the news and you're saying to yourself, boy, what do I do with all of this? Hope pushes us to look forward. Paul actually is taking much of the armor of God, or he's taking this, he, he's actually taking this from Isaiah chapter 9. I don't know if any of you have recognized that, but, but um, he stole that from, some of this from Isaiah. Stole is probably a bad word. He's using the Bible the way the Bible ought to be used, expanding on it. Um, I'm going to have to answer for that one day. Good, and I want to put, I know it's a long text, but I want to put it up, and so we can sort of read through it together, because this is, this is really cool how, um, how Isaiah parallels what Jesus did and how Paul is calling us to remember this ancient prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus. And it says this. Um, let me start with verse 15. Uh, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. And he put on the breastplate and the helmet. Of, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to the deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream with the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those in Jacob who have turned from transgression 
declares the Lord. I love that. I love how that foreshadows everything that Jesus is about to do. And it is Paul hearkening back for us to say, what was the prophecy? The prophecy was that someone would come, that someone with the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, that they would show up on the scene and everything would be changed, that everything would, would be transformed, that, that there would be peace, that there would be righteousness. We read this throughout the prophets, this great living hope, this looking forward that a day is going to come and all things will be set right. And so as we come to a conclusion this morning, I, I, was, I was sort of racking my brain to think about how to bring it all together. And I was drawn to the words of John, beloved words. I know you've heard them before, but just take them in for a moment. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may also be. So as we come to a conclusion this morning, I think the question that sits at our doorstep as we contemplate this great message of salvation depends very much on where you're sitting today. Are you a Christian who has taken off the helmet? And set it aside for a time. It's time now to pick it back up and to put it on and to get back in the fight. And give yourself over to the Lord in a new and renewed way. Is there some place that you need to press forward in advance because you have the hope of salvation? Have you never responded to the message of Jesus? And this morning, finally, it's time. Time to be washed clean in the waters of baptism. It's time to put on that helmet of salvation. It's time to replace that stone heart for a heart of flesh and let God write his laws upon it so that you might be new in him. What is your move today? Now is the time. Please stand as we sing this song.